Good morning, church. How are you guys doing today? I want to once again extend a special welcome to our families and friends uh, and also to the Bronx Ministry. We're glad to have you here in Harlem with us. Uh, I, I always like to think that I represent both parts of Harlem and the Bronx. I was born in Harlem, uh, went to school in Harlem, baptized in Harlem, uh, but Harlem got too expensive, and then I discovered the Bronx. Uh, and that's where my wife and my two children reside. Uh, we live on Sedgwick, so we're not actually too far from uh, Lehman. I oftentimes are, I'm jogging around the reservoir. Uh, I, I see some of my brothers at the Starbucks on 225th and Broadway. That is not a, a plug, but um, just glad to have the Bronx here. Uh, and if you're visiting with us, um, this is not usually the place, if you are from the Bronx, where you would meet. You would usually meet at Lehman College, but we are glad to have you here if you're visiting with us today. Uh, if you notice that some of the seats are a little sparse, it's because we have quite a few events going on today. I think today the teens are at the Bronx Zoo for their Solid Rock. Is that correct? Oh, that was yesterday. So are they recuperating or are they here? Where, where are they? Um, and then we have our marrieds who are, some of our marrieds who, who are getting together for a marriage retreat. Um, marrieds like myself decided to stay because uh, I didn't want to punish anyone by watching my two-year-old uh, because he does not sleep through the night. And we couldn't bring him because then we wouldn't be able to sleep through the night and enjoy um, the retreat. And so here we are, but I'm glad to be with you guys. Uh, I don't know what kind of morning you had. Um, my morning started off really good, and then it got really bad. Um, I didn't know that there was a cycling event going on, but I found out really quick when I saw the barricades, and I had to be rerouted for what would have taken 15 minutes, then took 40 minutes. So I'm, I'm still kind of getting over that. I'm still mad at some of those cyclists. I don't know all of them. But they made my day go really, really bad. Um, so what I want to do is just kind of take a bit of a temperature check before we get into our message. And this is going to take a little bit of participation on your part. So I'm going to give you kind of a, a three rating system. And by a clap of hands, you tell me which of these ratings represents where you are. And I want you to be honest about this, all right? Um, so I'm going to give you the ratings, and then I'll, I'll go over them again and ask you to clap for the one that best represents you. So if I say a one, that means that you're doing great, right? You had a great morning. You, you had your oatmeal. You had your fruits on top of it. You got a chance to watch the news. You had your quiet time in peace. Uh, you had a beautiful commute over here. You just walked in, and you, you're just ready to go. So, so that, that's a one. A two is you're like, eh, you know, it was a rough day. Um, you know, some things went well. And I'm just kind of okay, right? The sun isn't actually shining right now, but, you know, uh, things aren't too bad. Number three is, bro, I'm just glad I made it today. So if you are a one, let me hear a clap of hands. All right. All right. That's good. Let's see how honest people are. If you are a two, Did the same people clap for one and two? You can only choose one, you know. All right, number three. All right, bro, I'm just glad I made it. I'm with you guys. That's how I feel right now. So we're going to get started with our message. <coughs> excuse me. I'm also battling some allergies, so please excuse me if I begin to cough a bit. Uh, but let's go to God in prayer for our service and uh, get ready for our message. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to, uh, to just be here today. God, um, you know, just, uh, it was definitely a difficult commute for myself and my family, but we are glad that we are here. God, I am uh, grateful for all of our family and friends who have made it out uh, for, for, the, for the members of the church who are here. God, we are so thankful that we get to worship you today. God, we recognize that we cannot do anything without you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, of our lives, of our salvation. Uh, and God, we are grateful that we get to serve a true and living God. Father, we thank you for saving our lives and our souls. God, we were lost, God, and could not find our way. And we thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. I pray that the message that I preach today, God, will be your words, uh, that it will help all of us in some way to draw nearer to you, God, that we would make decisions 
the tough decisions that we need to make, God, the uncomfortable decisions that we need to make in order to do what's right before your eyes, God. Let us not be distracted by the world, by, by our jobs, by anything else that, that, that is competing with our attention, God, but to give you our 100% soul focus today. God, again, we thank you so much for this time. These things we ask for your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, today the Bronx and Harlem uh, regions uh, of the, the marrieds are out on a retreat uh, entitled Life Beyond the Vows. And I think it was such uh, a great topic and opportunity, and I wanted to even kind of parallel uh, that topic today in the message. You know, you had couples, and I've already seen some of the Facebook posts, and if, if you're Facebook friends with, with some of the married couples, you've already seen some of the pictures that they've been posting about the dinners and the dances. Uh, so you have couples ranging from newlyweds to those who've been married for over 20 years, and everyone in between learning about maintaining and renewing the promises that they made to each other at the altar. And it's always good to be reminded of the promises that you make, isn't it? Right? Because you don't want to just be someone who says something and doesn't follow through. And I think it's great that they get a chance to really focus on what does it mean to be married beyond the vows. You know, sometimes we get excited about the wedding, right? You know, if you ask someone who's, who, who's, who's looking to you know, to get married, you know, you ask them what they want to do, and they say, I want to get married. But how often do you hear people say, I want to be married? You know, there's a difference in getting married and being married. You know, getting married sounds really exciting, because you're thinking about the wedding, you're thinking about arrangements, who's going to sit where, you're going to have fish, you're going to have meat, or you're just going to have snacks, because you want to get everybody out of there, and you don't want to spend a lot of money. That was my wedding. But it was open to everybody. It wasn't a special invitation. So everyone had a chance to come and celebrate. But there's a difference between getting married and being married. And being married means that you're thinking more of the long term, that you're more into not just the act of the marriage and the ceremony, but you're excited about the process, about learning each other, about understanding this person who you think you know, but you really don't know. And marriage will definitely reveal those things. And like a marriage, there are many other instances where we need to do the same thing, where we need to renew the promises that we make, where we need to refresh and remember the vows that we made that we were committed to. You see, there comes a point in time in everyone's life where the thing or person that you were once so excited about just doesn't seem to have the same appeal that it did at first. And that could be a friendship. You know, maybe when you first met this friend of yours, you guys just connected. You were finishing each other's sentences. You were just talking on the phone all night. You could just sit around each other and not say anything at all. But because you guys were friends, you were able to have that connection. But then over time, maybe something went sour. Maybe you had an argument. Maybe you had a disagreement. And that once fresh friendship now seems to be a little worn. You know, or you see people, maybe you see, maybe it's not just you, maybe you see other people get excited about things, and you just don't feel the same way that they do. I don't know if you're like me, but I am not a morning person. Everyone else in my house is a morning person, and it is torture. My kids wake up anywhere between 5 and 6 a.m. in the morning, and nobody's transitioning into the morning. It's not like, let me sit on the couch, let me kind of get my get my vision together because it's bright outside, you know, let me just relax and kind of, you know, ease into the morning. It's as soon as they're up, they want food, they want the TV on, they thought about a game last night while they were sleeping that they want to play with you this morning, uh, my daughter wants me to paint her nails, she wants to get her hair done, it's like, it's just full throttle as soon as they get up. And sometimes you may see people excited about things, and the sight of them being excited makes you upset. I don't know if you're like that, but you're just looking at them like, what are you so happy about? Like, I mean, I mean, really, like, you know, let's not be, you know, let's not exaggerate here. Maybe you're someone like me. You know, have you ever seen first-time parents before? The nine-month wait is over. The delivery was a success. And now little Johnny or Susie is all they talk about. Every Facebook post is, Johnny turned one today. 
right? Or Susie turned one week. Or you get invitations to Johnny's three-month-old birthday party, right? I mean, it's just nonstop excitement. And don't try to give new parents hand-me-down clothes. First-time parents, oh, no. I don't, want your, your, I don't want your kid, I don't want the clothes that your kids outgrew to touch the flesh of my newborn child. And don't talk about grandparents. Grandparents are exactly the same way. They want everything brand new because it's the first time and it is so fresh. But have you ever seen experienced parents or parents who have multiple kids? They're glad they have their kids. But let's just say that the same level of excitement isn't there. You know, I, I want to show you guys a slideshow, and, 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 it, and it's, it's up here behind me. You know, I want to look at some comparisons between first-time parents and experienced parents. All right, so first-time parents, this is what the nursery looks like. Right? I mean, they went all out. They went to Toys R Us. They went to Babies R Us or, or Macy's or Nordstrom or who, who knows what. You know, color-coordinated the room got the crib all set up. They got some playful horse there. They got, a, they got their own dining room. I mean, it's like their own little mini house in there. You know, first-time parents want to make the nursery look so spectacular. Experienced parents, on the other hand, you're like, listen, <laughs> you got your own room. You got a mattress. And you got a sheet. Good night. Listen, at least the sheet, I think, I think that's like a satin sheet. So, you know, I mean, you know, they at least splurged a little. But experienced parents are like, listen, I'm not, I'm not painting anything. You're going to get whatever your brother got or whatever your sister got. All right. Here's one when it comes to announcing the birth. I mean, they're so proud and happy. Right? Everyone's got to know that they got a baby. Right? This, this is a scene from, uh, from, from The Lion King. Right? This, this, is, this is presenting their child to the world. This is what you get from experienced parents. And this is from the mother. Right? She's like, listen, I'm good. The baby's born. Uh, you know, everyone's fine. Right? But no more special announcements going on. All right. What about when you're a first-time parent and you're looking for a babysitter? Who do you trust to take care of your newborn bundle of joy? You want Mary Poppins, right? I mean, you, 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 want, you want magic to happen. You want someone who is over your child, watching them. I mean, it's flying with umbrellas. I mean, you want everything to happen with your child. Experienced parents... Listen, just make sure my child doesn't break the house. You know, just... And listen, I think this is considerate because they taped the toy next to her. So at least they were thinking about giving her something to do while she's up there. She looks fine. I mean, you know, she's not complaining. She, she gets it. All right. If you know anyone who's doing this, by the way, I just want to say that you have to report them. I mean, this, this is... <laughs> we are mandated reporters here, uh, if you know anybody who's taping their child to the wall. All right, what about when it comes to their outfits? What, how do first-time parents dress their kids, right? Look like models on runways. I mean, they're, they're, they're coordinating outfits. Kids look like they came out of a Gap commercial, right? I mean, they got expensive clothes. Experienced parents... Like, listen, he did this to himself. I mean, I've, I've taken my kids out with just stains. Like, listen, we've we got to go. I can't be late for work. I'm sorry. You know, wrinkle clothes. You know, you're just trying to get them out the house. All right, we're going to look at a, at a few more here before we get into a... All right, first time bath. Look at that. They're next to the pool. It's serene. They got flowers in the background. Look how relaxed the baby is. Right? The mother's just admiring the child, just laying there. Experienced parents, it's like, listen, line up, and you're getting hosed down. No special treatment here. All right, 
we're going to do one more here. This is, this is the first birthday, right? I mean, you go to Party City, you want to get all of the gifts, and you want to invite the friends. You got uh, favorite cakes, <coughs> balloons, streamers. After that first party is over, this is what the rest of your parties are going to look like. It's you and your parents, a cake, and a couple of Subway sandwiches that you're probably going to cut up so everyone gets a slice. He has like one cup of juice there on the table, and I guess they're going to share that. But, but that's what your birthday is going to look like after your first one, right? <coughs> so, you know, th- the things that were once exciting can grow weary after a while. And, and uh, you can cut off the, uh, the slide for me in the back. Thank you. You know, like many other things in our lives, what once felt exciting and fresh over time loses and becomes worn, may even become boring or even feel burdensome. You know, when ma- but when married couples seek to renew the spark in their marriage, what do they do? They go on retreats. When the job that you loved, right, that you got up early in the morning for, for those first few weeks, when you took work home, when you even asked for extra work, when you asked if you could stick around for extra shifts, no, that never happened. That, that, that once exciting job, now you're just looking to just take vacation. And you can't wait to get away. And you can do that and be able to recoup to get your energy back. You know, when your children are driving you crazy and up the wall, you know, what can you do to have an escape? You send them to their grandparents so they can drive them up the wall and give you a break. But even parents can have a relief from their children and be able to recuperate. Old clothes that you've worn can be tailored or sewn. Students who have been going through their semesters and their exams and finals can get a summer break. Cars that were once brand new and that are broken down can get retuned. But what about our relationship with God? What do you do when the once exciting and inspiring relationship that you had with God begins to wear? What do you do when the I can't stop talking and thinking about God and what he's done for me. Or the, how can I get baptized? I'm anxious. I want to make this happen. Or maybe you once said, introduce me to more of your friends, like you. <coughs> or you're asking, when is the next event? I want to come out again. I want to see more of this. Maybe you said, hey, do you have any single brothers like you that I can meet? Or maybe you said, hey, when can I teach the children's ministry? I want to be able to help the children. What happens when that turns into, man, I could really be doing some laundry right now instead of being at church today? Or why are people always asking me if I'm studying the Bible when I come to this church? Or thank God midweek is for women only this time. Oh, that was just me who who, uh, thinks that? All right, that's... It's all right. That's cool. Or I'll read my Bible, but after these 10 episodes. Right? That once, wake up early in the morning, my word and my time with God is more important than food, now becomes, ah, I want to finish these Netflix movies. You know, what do we do when we no longer desire God? You know, you see, we don't often like to talk about or admit that sometimes, if we're honest, we just don't desire God. You know, sometimes if you're like me, you know, I thought, how could a Christian not always desire God? I mean, we know that God is good. We know that he loves us. We know that we should read our Bibles, and we know that we should get baptized and repent from our sins. We know that we need to open and be honest about our sins. But sometimes we just don't feel like loving God or spending time with him or listening to him or praying to him. And our desires for him can sometimes grow weak and weaker. You know, today, if that's where you are or where you may eventually be, I have two quick points today that I want to share with you that will hopefully help us to begin to regain our desire back for God. Are you guys with me today? And I have to admit, this is only if you're willing to admit that just sometimes you're not all there in your relationship with God. 
And maybe you're visiting with us, and you're wondering, why are these people so excited about their relationship with God? What's, what's, what's so exciting about this? You know, I was once there. When I first came out to this church over 18 years ago, I've been a disciple since 1998. You know, I would look at, I was a part of the campus ministry, and I was just wondering, man, what, what is it about this that makes people so excited about church and fellowship? That's, that's not me. I've never been excited about that. You know, and it was something that I had to learn in how I could establish this in my relationship with God. So whether you are an established Christian or member of the church, and you want to be able to renew that desire with God, or maybe you're visiting with us, and you want to be able to spark and start to have a desire with God, hopefully both of you can be able to walk away with something today. You know, what I want to first do, and I'm going to start with my first point here. My first point is, there is no spoon. Now, if you're familiar with that phrase, that comes from the, uh, the movie The Matrix. And in this scene, the, the uh, protagonist, which is Neo, uh, you know, before he's kind of discovering his, his, his power and who he truly is, uh, he goes to the Oracle. And the Oracle is this, this um, kind of motherly-like being who is almost like a fortune teller, right? This, this is the person that he goes to to kind of get advice about, you know, what should I do? You know, what should I do about, about the next stages, stages in my life? And so while he's waiting, there's like a waiting room to see the Oracle, while he's waiting, there's a little boy there, and this boy is holding a spoon. And the spoon, it looks like the boy is moving the spoon with his mind, right? The spoon begins to bend. And so Neo looks over and is asking the kid, hey, how are you doing this? And the kid tells him, the first thing you need to recognize is that there is no spoon. It's all in your mind and your perception. You know, when it comes to renewing and redeveloping or developing a desire for God, we first have to understand that there is no magic to it. There is no spoon. You're not going to walk through those doors and all of a sudden you're going to feel spiritual. You're not going to sit in those seats and all of a sudden develop a desire and a want for God. You know, it's funny, but we don't think about anything else in the same way. We don't think, hey, if I sit next to this person long enough, they're going to like me. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything. Just my mere presence alone is going to spark this interest. You know, we don't apply this to any other logic in our lives. But for some reason, when it comes to our relationship with God, we think that just by walking into church, or we think that, well, maybe if my spouse is, is reading and into this stuff, it'll kind of absorb into me. But what it's going to take is it's going to have to take effort. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to park here for a few minutes for our first point. And let me know when you guys get there. We've been having some uh, technical challenges, and so uh, that's probably why this uh, image is still behind me on the screen. Um, but I know that our AV team is, is working hard to get this stuff together. So in the meantime, you're going to actually have to open the Bible and flip some pages or open your tablet. And if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to share with someone next to you. But in Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read from verse 7 to 12. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks <coughs> excuse me, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You know, just to give a bit of a context, you know, this is part of the Sermon on the Mound uh, and the, the message that is uh, connected to the Beatitudes. You know, this is Jesus, this is part of Jesus' first public uh, sermon as he's introduced as the Son of God once he's baptized by John. And previously before this, he talks about different aspects <coughs> connecting the Old and New Testament. But he also brings about, uh, you know, some fulfillment, right? See, he's also kind of taking things to a higher level. 
And he's telling people about things like not worrying or about loving your enemies. He gives instructions on fasting and warnings against adultery and divorce. <coughs> Excuse me. And in chapter 7, in verse 7, he breaks down the steps of how we should approach our relationship with God in order to get the things that we want. And he captures it in three categories. Ask, seek, and knock. And I want to take a look at these steps individually because if we want to really be able to renew our desire with God, it's not going to be a magical process. It's going to be a process of asking, seeking, and knocking. And my question is, how are you doing with that? Where are you with that? And we're going to talk a little bit about this as we go through. First, we're going to look at ask. You know, asking is not just a simple step. You know, asking at its core is an approach of humility. The one who is asking is admitting that they are incapable of accomplishing something or that they are in need of assistance. You know, the very act of asking for something means that you're admitting that you don't always know what you're doing and that you need the help of someone else. Sometimes the hardest thing for people to do is ask. You ever been in those situations where you know you need help from somebody? You know you need to call somebody, or you know that you're at work and you can't figure out this project, but you just won't ask for help? And you'll rather sit there and mess it up than actually have someone come and help you. You know, in my job, I supervise uh, different, different directors and staff members. And I tell my directors, I, I say, I would rather you come to me and ask for help than you try to figure it out on your own and end up messing it up. Because I want them to understand that there is something powerful in asking. But as a society, we're oftentimes shamed for asking for help. But here Jesus is saying, if you want to get to the core of things, if you want to really be able to understand and regain your desire, you first have to be at a place of humility where you are willing to ask. And I think for many of us, we're not there yet. We're still prideful in the way that we approach things. And we want to do it our way, right? We don't want to do it anybody else's way. We think we have all the answers. And even when we're hurting inside, and, you know, I'll be honest about this. I mean, there have been times where I've even hurt myself just because my pride wouldn't allow me to ask for help. And there are times when you can see people needing help, and you're just like, I can't do anything for you unless you're willing to ask for it. It has to come from the individual. You know, it can also mean that you may know or have the ability to do something, but in humility, you choose not to do it on your own. See, asking isn't just simply about, I don't know what to do. Asking is also, I know what to do, but I don't want to do it alone. I want to bring other people into this. You know, one of the great uh, explanations or, or definitions of marriage that I ever heard before, before I got married, you know, I used to hear, uh, you know, marriage is like a 50-50 thing. And, and uh, one spouse brings 50%, the other spouse brings the other 50, and together they make 100%. And one day I, I heard a message from, uh, from a minister who said that marriage is not about bringing 50-50. It's about bringing 100 with 100. It's about, I could go about this on my own. God has given me what I need to make this trek on my own and to do it well. But I want to bring someone else along for the ride. I want to be able to share this with someone else. And oftentimes when we approach marriage or even think about relationships, if we're thinking that we're expecting someone to bring the other half of what we're missing, you're going to be disappointed because no one is going to be able to give you anything in the way that God can give it to you. And you have to be at a point where you yourself are at 100%. You're not waiting and looking for someone else to bring the other 50 you have to be at a place where you and God are solid. And anybody who becomes a part of that is just icing on the cake. And if that person happens to leave, guess what? You were 100% before they got there. But so often, 
we enter into things expecting others to bring what we lack. And then we get disappointed, and we get heartbroken, and we get frustrated because we're expecting of others what they cannot provide. Only God can do that. And so when we approach God, we have to be at a place where we are willing to ask. You know, turn to uh, James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, I'm battling this thing here. In James chapter 4 and verse 3, you know, the Bible also gives us some instructions on asking. And so sometimes we get to a point where we say, all right, I'm fed up. I'm going to approach this humbly and I'm going to ask for help. But just because you ask, it doesn't always mean that you're going to get it. And even when we ask, just the mere act of asking is not enough in itself. Let's look at James chapter 4, verse 3. He says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. God says, when you ask for something, it's not just about asking for whatever you want and expecting to get it. It's about coming to God with the right motives. And if you are in a situation where you've been asking for a long time and you're feeling frustrated that you're not getting the answers that you're seeking, maybe you need to backtrack and find out if you're asking with the right motives to begin with. Because God promises us that if we don't come with the right motives in our ask, that we will not receive just off of that alone. And sometimes we think that just because we're at a point now where we're saying, all right, I'm admitting that I need something, it's also about well, why are you asking for help? What are you going to use what you're asking for to better your relationship with God or to help others? You know, here he says that when you ask, you don't receive because your real motive is to take what you get and spend it on yourself. You know, when we ask for things, who are you thinking about when you're asking? Are you just simply thinking about you and what you want in that moment? Or are you thinking about how this can not only help build you up, but help build others up? You know, I remember when I was praying for a car. And, you know, I was trying to save up some money, and I wanted to be able to get a car. Um, and it just wasn't happening. And I remember a brother asked me, he said, why do you want to get a car? And I was like, well, I want to have to take the bus. I mean, you know, it was... You know, when it's snowing, I want to be able to get in in a warm car. I don't want to have to deal with rush hour traffic. I want to be able to have my own music and be able to get from point A to point B. I don't want to have to walk to a train stop. And he said, that's the problem. You want to get a car for yourself. And I was like, yeah, I mean, (laughs) nobody nobody else is making the payments. I mean, you know, who else am I thinking about here? And he said, you know, how are you going to use that to help benefit others? For example, if I need a ride, are you going to help come out and give me a ride if if, if I need help with something? And I was like, well, it it depends on what time it is. I mean, you know, if I'm I'm doing something. But, you know, the, the point of it was, I mean, he was really helping me to get at the heart of it's not just simply about asking for what you want, but about asking in ways that can help other people. You know, where is your, where are your motives when you are asking. But first we have to be to a point where we are willing to be humble to ask for help. Are you guys with me so far? All right, number two, seek. So we're going to go back to Matthew 7. So the second step in renewing our desire or developing a desire with God is to seek. You know, seeking is an action. It's a movement. So first we go from the act of asking. We first have to be at a place of humility where we recognize that we need help or that we want to do something in collaboration with others. 
But then Jesus takes it a step further and says, you don't just ask and leave it there. Now you've got to go and seek. You have to go and move. You know, it understands that one must actively pursue. You know, he doesn't just say look, because looking in itself can be done at a standstill. Right now, I'm looking at all of you. But what Jesus says instead is he says you must seek. You have to be the one to initiate the action. There's no sitting around when you're seeking. You're not waiting for others to bring it to you when you're seeking. So if you're struggling in your desire with God and you're just sitting there wondering, why don't I feel my love or my devotion to God, how have you been seeking it? How have you been actively going at it? Or maybe you sit at home and you say, no one's calling me. No one's asking me how I'm doing. Someone who is seeking is getting off of their seat and going after it. They're initiating the phone calls. They're going to your house. They're saying, I didn't see you today. I need help with something. They're ringing your phone. Someone who is seeking is someone who is initiating. Have you been seeking? You know, others cannot seek on your behalf. Just because your friend is seeking, or your spouse is seeking, or your parents are seeking, or your children are seeking, doesn't mean that what they find will now become yours. It is an individual endeavor. It is something that each of us will be held accountable to. When we get to heaven, God is not going to say, hey, did you seek this on behalf of your spouse? Did you seek this on behalf of your friend? They're going, God is going to ask you, how have you been seeking? How have you gone after it? You know, I have a six-year-old daughter, and don't ask this girl to find anything. Because she is going to seek in a one-inch vicinity. So my daughter's name is Charlie. And, and I'll say, Charlie, can you, can, you find, uh, can, can you find the scissors for me? This is what she'll do. I don't see it. All right. Or, this is next level stuff here. While she's watching TV, if you ask her to do something or she's doing something else, th this is what she'll do. No, no, it's not here. It's like, we got six rooms in this house. I mean, can you, can you get up and look for it? You know, I don't know if you have someone like that where you're like, look for something. And, and, and they're just like, I don't, I don't see it anywhere. And literally, had they moved two feet to the left, they would have found what they were looking for. You know, are you an active seeker? You know, sometimes, again, we get frustrated because we're not finding the things we're looking for when in actuality, if we're honest with ourselves, we really haven't been seeking it. You know, someone who is seeking is going after it. It also means that it's not a one-time thing. You know, sometimes we think, all right, I'm going to give this one good shot. And we go after it, and we put our hearts out there. And then we get disappointed, and we say, well, I tried. That was it. Someone who is seeking, God doesn't just say, stop at that moment. Seeking is continuous. It's constant. You're not just sufficient at one effort. You're going to continue to go and be persistent until you get what you are looking for. How are you seeking today? You know, we have to be people who are really going after our desire with God. It's not going to magically absorb into your body. You have to fight for it, and you have to physically go out there and make the effort to make it happen. You know, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read through it. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to read verse 12 and 13. He says, then you will call on me, and I will come and pray. He says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, 
and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? With all your heart. You guys see the, you guys see the thread here? So when we first looked at asking, it wasn't just about asking in whatever way you want. It's about asking. Thank you, brother. It is about asking with the right motives. And seeking isn't just simply about going after and pursuing. It's about doing it with all of your heart. You know, we have to make sure that when we are seeking and pursuing, that our heart is behind it, that it can't be some half-hearted effort, but we have to be fully devoted and committed. Someone who is seeking with all of their heart is someone who is okay with getting hurt because they understand that that's part of the process. Someone who's seeking with all of their heart understands that disappointment is just part of the process. But it's not going to hinder them or stop them from going after what they want. But someone who doesn't understand seeking, the minute it happens, they're going to give up. And they're going to say, you know what, this isn't worth it to begin with. They're going to be tested. You know, if we're going to be seekers, we have to be willing to be people who are able to overcome the obstacles that will be there. Anything that you want that is worth having is going to have its challenges. Expect it, but don't allow it to stop you from pursuing it. We have to be seekers, amen? And finally, for this first part, we're going to look at knocking. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 7, where he talks about knocking. Now, what is it about knocking, right? So we talked about asking, seeking, and now knocking. So these are the steps for how do we regain our desire for God. Now, here's the question. Why do you knock? You want to get an answer, right? When you knock, what do you knock on? You knock on a door. Because... Wait a minute, do you, are you guys randomly going around neighborhoods knocking on doors? No. So why do you knock on a door? Because you want to get in. <laughs> Thank you, Makai. You knock on a door because you want to get in. Someone who is knocking is someone who wants to be invited in. Knocking says, I don't want to be out here anymore. I'm tired of what out here has to offer. I want to get into where you are. Someone who is knocking is tired of where they are, and they want to make the transition onto the other side of that door. So when we approach our relationship with God, when we approach our desire for God, we're knocking because we're saying, God, I don't want to be out here without you. I need you to open this door to let me in. And so I'm going to stand here and knock until this door is open. You know, knocking is also a sign of humble respect because knocking admits that you cannot let yourself in. You have to be invited in by the owner of the house. And the owner of our house is Jesus Christ. We cannot simply kick the door down. We can't slide in through the window. We can't just stand out there and just hope that he'll come out and we'll just, our paths will cross. We have to have our hands on the door knocking because we are telling God, I need to get in there. You know, you recognize that someone has to let you in. And thanks be to God that whenever we knock, no matter the time, no matter the conditions, no matter if he's having dinner with the family, we know that our God 24-7 will open that door for us at all times. Because I can tell you right now, if you knock on my door at 3 o'clock in the morning, I will not open that door for you. But thanks that I am not God. Because our God is always ready and listening. Our God is standing at the door. He's waiting for you to knock so that he can let you in. But we have to be at a place where we want to be invited. You know, it takes having a humble approach. And in the same way, when we are seeking to renew our desires with God. We have to be at a place where we're saying, God, I cannot do this on my own. And I need to be 
where you are. I can't do this alone. So when it comes to fighting through our lack of desire for God, we have to be humble askers, diligent seekers, and persistent knockers. And finally, uh, for my second point, and we're going to come to a close here, desire for God <coughs> is a bit, uh, it's a bit tricky. But we have to recognize that desire is not the goal. <coughs> and this is what I mean, in case this begins to seem uh, a little up and down. But the, the goal in our pursuit of our desire for God, the desire is not the goal itself. You know, one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in our pursuit of reestablishing or even establishing our desire for God is that we make the achievement of desire the priority. And what I mean is you can think about this through a marriage. And I'll use my marriage as an example. You know, my wife and I have been married for more than 12 years. In, in uh, August? My wife here? <laughs> August? You judgmental people. Judgmental people. I know it's in August. August 8th? Is, is my wife here? She says August 7th. All right. See, that was a test because I wanted to make sure that she knew when we were. You passed, baby. I'm so proud of you. So we've been married for over 12 years, and August 7th will make 13 years of marriage. Uh, we have two children. Uh, as I mentioned before, we have a, a daughter named Charlie who is six uh, and a son, Aaron, who uh, is two going on, uh, I don't know what at this point, um, but we love him. Um, we both have full-time and very demanding jobs. Uh, I'm also a full-time student pursuing my master's degree. Uh, our daughter has two after-schools a week, and on Saturdays while I'm in school all day, my wife takes both of the kids to swim class. There's midweek service on Wednesdays. There are prayer services on Thursday. And there's the occasional marriage class on Friday. And there's church on Sundays. This does not include laundry, studying for exams or writing papers, bringing work home, cooking meals, washing dishes, grocery shopping, and spending time with our children. For me to tell you that we always, that my wife and I always desire each other's company would be a lie. And it's not to say that we don't love each other or that we don't enjoy each other's company. In fact, I've learned to love and appreciate my wife more in 12, in, at the 12th year with two children than I did when we were newlyweds. Thank you. You heard that, you heard that babe? All right. But we didn't get married because of our desire for each other, because we knew that there would be times when desire would not be there. We got married because for better or worse, we were going to fight to love and serve each other. You know, in our society where you get to filter your life, we are fooled by thinking that people are living these perfect lives. That everyone wakes up just with makeup on, hair done, I mean, the angle shots that people are taking, I mean, it's like this is professional photography going on here. I mean, you see pictures of people, you know, uh, you know going out to, to work and got a Starbucks coffee in one hand and, and the bag in the other, and they're just, I mean, blissfully going on their day. But the reality is, is that there are times and moments where you just will not feel like it. But you don't do it for the feeling. The feeling is not the goal. The goal and our desire for God has to be God. But so often, we chase the desire. And then we say, I don't feel like it. I'm not feeling like I, like I want to be with God. I don't feel like reading my Bible. Therefore, I will not do it. Or I don't feel like getting baptized. Or this is getting really harder than I thought. So therefore, I'm not going to do it. You know, people get divorced for many different reasons, but sometimes it's because they go into a relationship and all they're into is just the excitement 
of getting married rather than being excited about the process of being married. They're more into the happiness than they are into the person. And there are times where you're not going to feel like loving the person. But it doesn't mean that you stop serving and appreciating them. You know, any honest parent is going to tell you that there are days when you just aren't feeling your kids. I mean, can I get an amen from some of the parents in here? I can't be the only one. Don't make me look bad up here. You know, I thought when I was, you know, I thought when we were going to have kids, it was just going to be, come, come, come to meet children. You know, just, <laughs> your father is here. I mean, tell me your problems. When you are in the dead of sleep at 3 in the morning, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you. You ever been asleep, parents, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and you just feel the aura of something? And you open your eyes, and your child is standing at the foot of your door, at the foot of your bed, creepily staring at you, just like, didn't say a word, just, just, look, just looking at you. And you're just like, are you trying to kill, like, are you trying to kill me? Like, what, what's, say something, like, don't just stand there. I mean, my daughter is there, and then I, I'm like, I open my eyes, and I'm like, and she's like, I got to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> and you can't just be like, all right, go. It's like, no, we got to go to the bathroom. I need you to stand guard while I'm using the bathroom. And when I'm done, you don't get to go back to bed. You get to take me back to bed. So now you got to walk. Now I got to walk her back to bed. Then I got to, you know, we, we got to have some kind of conversation. And then all of a sudden, she get, they get thirsty, right? It's like, it's like, who gets this thirsty? But now i got to get you a cup of water, and then it's like, all right, now I can finally go back to bed. And guess what? Now i got to be up two hours later or three hours later to get myself ready to work. At that time, I don't desire my – I know. There's, there's, there's no – there is no desire there, people. But it's not the desire that is driving my actions. It's my child needs something. I need to get over myself and make this happen. It's the same with our relationship with God. We have to get over ourselves, people. You're not always going to feel like it. But do your emotions drive your actions? Do you have to feel like something in order to do it? You know, the desire cannot be the goal. It has to be about God. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 73. And we're going to end off here. This is one of my favorite psalms. Plain as landing, as they would say. In Psalm chapter 73, this is a psalm of Asaph. And if you get a chance to read it on your own, I would encourage you to do it. We're going to read through the, through the entire psalm because I just think it's so important that, that you, you can just hear the transition of where the psalmist was at the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I think it really helps to capture where we can be with our desires with God. Excuse me. In, starting in, in verse 1, he says, surely God is good. Right? He recognizes that God is good. He says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With ignorance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. 
They go on amassing wealth. You know, I can so much relate to this. You're like, here I am, God, trying to love you, and I'm barely making it through my mortgage or a car payment or trying to get my, my, my kids through school or just be able to go out and enjoy an evening. But people who are just berating and just do whatever they want are millionaires and billionaires. I mean, they're, they're just messing the earth up and have no concern or care for anyone. How do they get to prosper? Why are their lives seemingly so carefree? You know, why aren't they burdened with these things? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do the, the right thing, and I feel burdened. How do they get to escape this? And so he goes on in verse 13. He says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely, amen, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when, when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me, by, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing. Earth has nothing. Earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but my God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You know, I love this psalm because it is so real. You know, he starts off just pouring out his heart. He says, God, I know you're good. I, I know these things, but man, it's hard when I see people around me who don't love you, not just don't love you, but despise you and ridicule you, and they get to prosper. That doesn't seem fair, God. And he gets to a point where he says, where, where, where he entered God's sanctuary and understood that, in fact, what seemed to be uh, a life of bliss and benefit was actually leading people to ruin. And that he, who was close to God, and sacrificing was in the better place. And so often for us, we can get to those moments where we're saying, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it fighting for this desire? What is it going to come to? Everyone around me who's not fighting for it seems to be doing pretty good. They're in relationships. They're married. They got bonuses, and they got jobs, and they got all these others. They got the nice cars. You know, why am I over here struggling trying to do this thing? And I, you know, I don't want to give the impression that Christianity doesn't mean that you can't have those things. I want to make sure that, 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 that that's clear. But sometimes when we compare ourselves to other people, we miss what we have. And we miss God. You know, here in verse uh, 24, he says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? I want you to understand this. If you've ever read Revelations before, Revelations does, uh, has a, a really uh, d descriptive um, image of heaven. And it talks about the magnificent cities, about angels singing beautiful songs to God, about beautiful rivers that are like mirrors they are so clear, streets of gold, I mean, just things that we, wish, that we think are so expensive here on earth are, are, are used as bricks 
to build the homes in heaven. But what is he most excited about in heaven? He's excited about God. You know, even when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about no more tears, no more pain, no more hurt, no more death. He says those things are nice, but I'm more excited about heaven because that is where my God is. You know, he understood that his goal was God. And even when he reflected on the earth, you know, for all of the things that can happen here on earth, there are some great things that we can celebrate and be a part of. But he says, even here on earth, there is nothing that has what I desire except God. And my question for you today is, as you are asking, as you are seeking, and as you are knocking to fight for your desire for God, are you more focused on gaining the desire or are you more focused on gaining God? You know, today I want to encourage you, whether you are trying to establish or reestablish, make sure that your focus is about God, that he is the center of what drives you. Guys, thank you so much for allowing me to share this message. I love you and to God be the glory.